0: The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Murder, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. I'm one of your hosts, Bruce Barquette, here with uh, daydreaming Aida Lysenring, Mr. Q. Um,
1: Hello, Bruce. Can you hear me? Because I'm not actually daydreaming. I can't hear anything.
0: Um, Well, you heard me. I'm I'm
1: going to do this whole radio show.
0: That'll be awkward. Completely deaf. That'll be awkward (laughs) with the guests (laughs) that we have calling in. Uh, We have two great guests tonight. Really, actually... Different people, different walks of life in the law, but really fascinating. First, we're going to have Fred Brewington, who's a civil rights attorney here in Long Island, who has done great work over the years. He has two, not one, but two really significant civil rights cases against Nassau County Police Department. He'll talk about them. One involves traffic stops, which he alleges uh, unfairly target African Americans, and the other is uh, kind of a corollary. It does not allow uh, or the Nassau County Police Department do not hire blacks uh, in sufficient numbers. There's a relatively small number of African-Americans being hired by the Nassau County Police Department. He brought a civil action um, challenging that on behalf of one person. And he brings statistics. I'm always a little curious about statistics, but it brings statistics supporting both lawsuits. Next, we have Jessica Jackson, who's a human rights attorney. And the chief advocacy officer at the Reform Alliance, who's going to talk about the excessive use of incarceration to punish people for non-criminal conduct—individuals who are on par- probation or parole who end up doing time without having violated any new laws, but simply didn't um, take, pl- you know, didn't follow some technical rule of probation or parole.
1: And fun little fact for you: she's. Kim Kardashian's law tutor
0: uh, for the bar exam. You mean? <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, that, that's but, not really but, a fun fact. But, to but more me, but fun maybe- fact
1: is she was one of the the she played a giant role in the development and enactment of the first step act, working alongside the Trump administration. And this act ended up uh, freeing or has freed over seven thousand people. So she's incredibly impressive, and we're very excited to have her on, as well as Frederick Brewington, who's really one of the top civil rights lawyer in America. Um, But I wanna say
0: congratulations to you, Bruce. Um, I didn't do anything this morning. Except I noticed, I heard the music playing and somebody had to say something, so
1: Well, I want to say congratulations to you because uh, of all the work you did on John Oliva's case, and this is a local case that people should know about, um, you know, w- one of the the many individuals who are dealing with the ripple effects of uh, disgraced police chief Spoda. Um, excuse police me, chief no, Burke. Burke and district attorney Spoda. And, and tell me what happened briefly and... He he wasn't incarcerated for many years like Loeb. You know, he wasn't wrongfully uh, sentenced to a term of years. But he lost his job for a wrongful conviction. He lost his reputation. um, And he lost his earning, you know, power thereafter. But you ultimately got him a quick settlement of $1.5 million. So congrats to you. That's not easy. Well, it's,
0: it's not me. Our, our law firm uh, was able to uh, vacate his conviction uh, and to um, end up re- end up result- resulting or resolving a civil case he had. And the county, I think, wisely did the right thing and settled the case for uh, that amount of money. What happened to John Oliva shouldn't have happened to anybody, but unfortunately it did to him. He was targeted by, quote, the administration, end quote, which are three individuals in Suffolk County who led the law enforcement community but acted like the mob, including the nomenclature or the name, the administration, which comes right out of mafia lore. And what they did was they ran their own little universe, and if you crossed them, they destroyed you. And John dared cross them by pointing out to reporters that his removal from a federal task force ended up causing a spike in crime uh, among uh, the Spanish gangs on Long Island, specifically MS-13. And they didn't like that, and they went after him, and they targeted him, and they destroyed his career, destroyed his reputation, uh, all in order to teach him and others a lesson that you don't do that. Well, at the end of the day, uh, John prevailed it took years he was 2014 he was forced out of his job he, he was forced to plead guilty to something that not only he didn't do but that literally wasn't a crime and he, last year the case um, went before the criminal court vacated the conviction with the consent of then DA Tim Seney, who deserves a shout out or a nod for that and we resolved the civil case um, I guess last week officially with the county. And and Steve Ballone, the county executive, and Dennis Cohen, the uh, county attorney, deserve credit for doing the right thing here. Uh, I think ultimately, if we had tried the case, we might have gotten more money, but John would have had to wait quite a while. And it would have been a long and bitter uh, litigation. So I think uh, John did the right thing in accepting less and the county did the right thing in paying the money.
1: I learned that somewhere. Money now is better than money later.
0: Uh, It is, but it's not just about the money. I think that the the county recognized that they want to put this um, really this disastrous um, tenure of Spoda and Burke and McPartland behind them. And John really wanted to get on with his life. He had been kind of living under this shadow of this for years. The Conviction was vacated. He was happy to have it end and and obviously, everybody recognizes that he didn't do anything wrong. And hopefully, that restores his reputation to some degree. Congratulations, John. And congratulations to the people in our office who worked so hard on that. Alex Klein, Donna Aldea, and John Laturko.
1: I'm back. I can hear. Excellent.
0: Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, so, uh, Rikers Island is, is in the midst of another upheaval. More people um, have – 10 people have died since May when the city said they had a plan to fix the problems that existed. And the legal aid attorneys who were a, leading a class action lawsuit have asked to have a special master appointed, have somebody else run the jail because the city but, obviously what, what can't. is that,
1: appoint a receiver? to ma- Basically they wanted, somebody legal else aid to run society the jail. wanted, somebody not else. just somebody else, but they wanted the federal government to run yeah, it. Yeah,
0: somebody else to run the Which is kind
1: jail. of amusing because the federal wow. government doesn't do the best job of running their own jails. <laughs>
0: like, Right? They, they, they don't, but the, it's a little bit different, right? You have the, the Bureau of Prisons who uh, operates the MCC and MDC uh, here in metropolitan area and other detention centers around the country and other prisons around the country. Uh, MDC and MCC are notoriously awful, but it's not the same people who are going to be running those that Legal Aid wants to run Rikers. Rikers is a disaster. Um, Eighteen
1: people have died. This year. Yeah. That's incredible.
0: It, it, Uh, um, It's really unbelievable, and it's despicable. Part of why it's despicable is that the... we know from talking to our clients what goes on there. We know what's happening. And to read some of the judges' comments that, you know, they're…
1: They're taking meaningful steps. She oh, wants please. to let
0: them right. Ex- exactly. do their it's thing. Just, it's They've just, created a
1: plan. But she know, has adjourned it for a short date. So. Yeah, but you
0: know what? I, I recall, I recall uh, being in front of somebody. This is a federal case. Uh, and actually, you know what? I'm gonna, I'll, I'll save this story because I know that we have Fred Brewington on the line. I want to get to him and the civil rights actions he's brought. There's actually two of them that are in the press relatively recently, as I indicated, one involving traffic stops where uh, Mr. Brewington alleges unfair um um practices by the police department targeting African Americans, and the other, which is an interesting kind of second suit I don't want to say second as in second class or behind that one, but another suit alleging that the Nassau county Police Department hasn't um, been hiring blacks in numbers that are appropriate and not that there's a quota system, but that his claim is that the numbers are so bad they indicate some kind of either implicit or explicit bias. Fred is a renowned civil rights lawyer. He's he's probably the best civil rights lawyer on the island, and he may be in the metropolitan area.
1: And he was named by Long Island Press as as the top 50 most powerful people in Long Island, a total of three times. He's done extensive and successful litigation on issues such as affordable housing, community revitalization efforts, employment and civil rights, the environment and voting rights, and fair representation in government. So we're very honored to have... Frederick Brewington with us, also an adjunct professor at Turo Law School. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much. I, I, I don't know who you guys were talking about, but I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> you <it> with
0: me. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we're talking about the person that we're talking to. Um, there you go. So look, really two different lawsuits with different uh, named plaintiffs. You represent both of them, but both lawsuits point to what really is a uh, what you claim to be a real unfortunate problem in NASA, an unfortunate might not be a strong enough word, that there's some kind of racial bias or racial discrimination. How do you see the relationship between these two cases, if at all?
2: Well, the two cases are, are, are a one-two punch in, in this situation. First of all, thank you for having me on, and um uh, glad to be able to speak to your, your, your listeners and to speak with you. Um, uh, the, the first case, which uh, deals with uh, a, a mother of one who's driving uh, her, her child after... Uh, shopping on the way home and get stopped by a police officer and then after that it's a it's a it it's a story of horrors and allegedly um you know after being detained for almost 10 years, excuse me 10 hours and being uh, strip-searched and handcuffed in front of her son. We look at this case, having known the statistics that followed the death of George Floyd, and looked at what the ratios were of arresting and stopping African Americans uh, in Nassau County, uh, um, uh, and saw that in the year, uh, for instance, 2018, uh, for every one white person stopped 47 uh, those were arrested. For every one white person arrested, there were 4.7 um, African Americans arrested. And the number then goes up in 2019. It doesn't get any better. Um, for every one white person, 5.3 are arrested. African Americans are arrested. And even though uh, we look at that number, we got to remember that that, that African Americans are approximately 10% of the total population. So when you're looking at the total population, the numbers are astounding, and it just can't be a mistake. How do of these connect because then when we look at hiring within Nassau County's police department, we see that the hiring uh, of African Americans that enter the process and go through the process for um, uh, uh, compared to their white counterparts where 24.2% of all those white individuals that go through the process are hired. Only 8.5% of African Americans that go through the process are hired. And that's just not. It can't be explained away because it just doesn't make any um, uh, historical or appropriate sense. Except for that, the process is biased. And when we look at the process, we look at all the different parts of what takes part of a, a hiring process and policing. And at every level, um, after uh, individuals enter in, African Americans are. Um, uh, live, Go and um, turned out of the process at a much higher rate than their white counterparts. We've asked Nassau County to look at these issues with regard to hiring, with regard to arrests, with regard to car stops, and look at these numbers and, and, and just basically come forward and say, hey, look, these are their, dis- their disparities and we need to address them. But Instead of doing that, Nassau County has basically refused to even address the fact that there are racial disparities in their numbers. And as a result of that, um, what that really means is that, that lawsuits such as these are necessary to try and correct some historical and ongoing discriminatory wrongs.
1: Has there been a, a response, and I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote numbers, hopefully I'm quoting them correctly, but in an article that your lawsuit was cited in a claim that Nassau County hired only 36 black officers out of 2,508 black applicants, and you're quoted. I love this quote as saying Nassau County has and continues to discriminate not because we say so, but because the numbers say so. Is that accurate? 36 black officers out of 2,508 black applicants.
2: Yeah, it, not only is it accurate, it, 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 it's 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 painfully accurate. And and people should recall that Newsday just about a year and a half ago did a a very detailed expose about the hiring practices of the police departments in Nassau and Suffolk County and looked at the disparities. And they were put on notice back then Nothing's changed. It's gotten worse. And in this situation, these lawsuits uh, that are brought both to show the disparate uh, impact, but also the the numbers are necessary to to make NASA really come to realize what
0: they're doing. So let me just say one thing, which is that we asked uh, Commissioner Ryder, Patrick Ryder, to come on. Um, and not with you, but also to comment on this because obviously it's his department or it's the department that he's running now. And on, and although I think personally Pat would do, be happy to come on, the county has this prohibition, uh, as do many, um, government institutions. They don't comment on pending litigation. So I just want to put that out there that we, we actually did yeah. want to, want to have, uh, Pat Ryder, who's been a guest on the show a few times, come back, come out and talk about this. Uh, with respect and to Bruce, the... that,
2: that's that, that, but that's important uh, and I'm glad that you did invite him and in, and I understand that their their position with regard to litigation, but we need to look at what the comments were at the time that these numbers came out in Newsday because litigation wasn't going on then. And at that time, rather than address the numbers, uh, Commissioner Ryder made comments like the reason why African Americans are not in, in being hired was because they come from broken homes.
0: Well, I, he, I, I he mean, did. He did, he, he did make that comment, but it was it was it yeah. was he made he, it was broader than that, right? I mean, when you cite the statistics, there's a couple of statistics that. I'm always weary, and not with you, obviously. I, you know, not with you, but generally speaking, when people cite statistics, to me, it's not the end; it's the beginning of the analysis, because there's always, always something else there. From what I understand, and tell me if this is correct or not, that that there were about in the period that they were looking at, there were 16,000 people who signed up to take the police test, and 3,000, or close to 20 percent, were African American. But of those 3,000, only 40% actually showed up to take the test. And in that context, somebody asked Commissioner Ryder, why do you think so many people who signed up to take the test didn't? And he made the comment that he made. Why do you think so many people who signed up to take the test didn't take it?
2: there's a number of issues. I mean, one of the things is that with regard to the taking the test, there are situations where there uh, have been and continue to be um, um, preparatory uh, uh, opportunities for individuals that are not of color that go into this process through the police department and through members of the police department. Historically, um, uh, the uh, recruitment of individuals, especially when we get to like the eligibility list, um, um, shows that, that the numbers just start to increase in terms of the disparities as we go forward. But the answer to the question is that's exactly why we need to look at this, Bruce. I I, you
0: know, I think I agree. I, I bet you that I can't speak exactly, for him, the, but I will bet you Commissioner Ryder would agree.
2: Yeah. I, well,
0: and I, I bet would, you
2: would agree. But but when asked the questions um the, the the county has been silent with regard to addressing so, these issues and th- this this is and you know by the way we're not we're not necessarily you know su- suggesting that that there's one person that's doing this on purpose but when you look at these numbers that are so devastating and they're so astounding you just can't step away from it and then just not do anything about it
1: so along those lines um and i think litigation, you know, ultimately helps that process, right? When people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, if you finally win in court, it, it forces action. But before that, because in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to get to the litigation. What would you suggest? Because you have so much experience specifically in Nassau County and you understand the community, you understand the police department, the County departments, you know, the criminal justice, uh, uh, entity here in Nassau, what would you propose to solve this problem?
2: We've proposed a number of things, and in in this complaint, the prayer for relief is two pages long. But one of the things is that that, that the the Justice Department, uh, who is supposed to be monitoring an ongoing consent decree concerning hiring in Nassau County, engage in making sure that Nassau County follows through on what they promised they would follow through on. They have not. Um, The other thing that we're really talking about is restoring... Uh, plaintiff and the members of this class, once the class is fully established, to their rightful positions on the eligibility list relating to the 2018 uh, exam cycle.
0: So we we don't have a ton of time. I want to spend a a little bit, a few seconds what we have left on the car stop issue and the arrests. One statistic that I found uh, in looking at this is that 95% of all arrests are based upon phone calls, 911, people coming into the precinct not police action so that the the number of people who are arrested whatever numbers however that breaks down is a function of people calling the police not of the police taking action on their own and i guess there's five percent that's left over do you do is that accurate statistic and, and how does that figure into your to your case
2: I don't know where that number comes from, and, uh, and if, if, if I'd be happy to examine it. But one of the things that you, you just referenced was the police taking action on their own. Let's put total arrest to the side for the second, and let's deal with car stops. One of the things that we know is that with regard to the—and and this was has been raised in both in Suffolk and Nassau County.
0: Fred, we're going to okay. run out of time in about 20 okay. seconds, Good. unfortunately. Sure.
2: So let me just bring, bring, it, to a, let me bring it to a point. These are issues that you raise that really need to be examined by Nassau County and not foo-foo. You, you know, That's you know, what we're
0: saying. hundred percent. I, I Look, I appreciate you coming on the show. I really do. I know you're, you're pressed for time in the evening. I, I want to ask you to come back at some point and spend a little bit more time with us because these issues really do deserve a more thorough examination than we were able to give in, a, in just 10 minutes. So I hope you come back. Uh, thanks so much for being on. And we'll talk to you again about this.
2: Thank you so much for having me. We we'll look forward to speaking to
0: you. We'll be right back with Jessica Jackson from the Human from the Reform, Reform Alliance. Alliance, a human rights attorney to talk about incarceration for non-criminal conduct. Thank you.
1: Welcome back to Crime and Justice Radio. My name is Aida Leisenring and I'm your host along with Bruce Barquette. Welcome back.
0: Welcome back. So one of the things that I think people aren't um aware of is that when you're on probation or parole or supervision as they call it these days, um you're given a a series of um,
1: conditions that that rules. you and I couldn't satisfy. Not for a it's week. Like, do not, not frequent areas that serve alcohol. That, by the way, there was a point in time where Starbucks actually sold mini bottles well, of and, wine. That would technically be a violation if you and, walked in for a and, latte.
0: And many gas stations serve beer. Right. So, and, and there and there are a whole slew of conditions that go with it. Prohibitions Keeping and mandates. Keeping a
1: journal. If you actually read through a lot of the probation conditions, they're right. Absolutely so,
0: ridiculous. So the the sanctions that are being imposed for individuals for violating these are tech, what we refer to as technical violations. In other words, they're violations of the conditions of probation, parole, or supervision, but they're not separate crimes. Somebody was late for a curfew. Um, somebody didn't keep their journal. Somebody traveled free,
1: without permission
0: traveled without permission and not not
1: it, to you know not to Cuba not to right to Medellin in New York but to North Queens, Carolina
0: or, or Queens yeah. in Queens you can't leave the county without uh, permission of your probation officer which means you can't go to Brooklyn, Manhattan or Nassau or the Bronx which seems nuts to me but they actually violate people for this and the sanctions for these is not more probation it's not more supervision it's often jail. And Whatever up,
1: time you have possibly left in prison, Well, right? So if the sentence was...
0: It, it works that way, yes. You couldn't get your remaining time in prison. But with su- federal supervision, you constantly have the two years added on. to. So you could be on supervision, incarcerated, on supervision, incarcerated, well beyond what your original sentence is. In any event, we have a, uh, a guest with us who's going to talk to us about this. She is the... Um, Oh, she, should,
1: may I? May I have uh, the honors? Uh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Jessica Jackson is one badass. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on radio. You just but did. I just did. She's a human rights attorney and chief advocacy officer at Reform Alliance, which is a pretty elite bipartisan think tank for criminal justice reform. She's also the co-founder of Dreamcore Justice, a national bipartisan effort aimed at Reducing America's incarceration rate. She served also, fun fact, as the youngest mayor of the city of Mill Valley in California. She has tutored Kim Kardashian in law. She has uh, rubbed shoulders with uh, the likes of Newt Ingridge and uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder, Van Jones. She created hashtag Cut50. Uh, which she'll tell us a little about, I introduce Jessica Jackson, whose resume would last probably three days on Crime and Justice Radio. Welcome.
3: Oh, thank you. You guys are so sweet. Thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, thanks for coming on. It's a, it's a fascinating topic. It's one of the things that has, as an attorney, driven me crazy for decades, that individuals end up going to jail having not committed any new crime, uh, and sometimes I go to jail or prison for quite a while without having committed a new crime. Uh, and it it's quite troubling. So t- tell us how you got started with this and what the Reform Alliance is.
3: Yeah. So the Reform Alliance was founded in the wake of Meek Mill's incarceration. So you might know Meek Mill. He's a, he's a rapper out of Pennsylvania.
0: I had to Google him. <laughs>
3: I've I've got an eighteen year old at home who uh who just sort of whispers all the right answers in my ear when it comes to pop stars. So luckily I get to stay off Google but um maybe maybe I'm relying on TikTok uh third party here. So um but he was incarcerated uh in his youth and, and served a prison sentence and then was left on probation. And while he was on probation, he received a series of what is called technical violations. So there's supervision violations could either be uh, some sort of a new crime that you've committed, because obviously when you're on supervision, parole or probation, you can't commit new crimes. Or it could be a technical violation, which is exactly what you guys were talking about um, in the intro. You know, people who Curfew. commit uh yeah, you, you basically violate a condition of your probation, but I, in no means are you committing a new crime. And I, I got to tell you, some of these conditions that I've seen over the last, you know, few years are so ridiculous. I, there is no way I could adhere to them, right? Like, think that's, about that's what
1: we were saying. <laughs>
3: think about the last time you were late to a meeting, right? Or or late on paying a bill. Um, Both of those things could end people who are on probation or parole up in jail or prison Um, and not just for a little bit of time. So Meek found himself in that situation. He had broken up a fight at an airport, broken up a fight, not been a participant of a fight. Nobody said he was a participant. He was literally breaking it up. Um, He had popped a wheelie on his motorcycle for a video he was making for one of his his songs. And he had, unfortunately, had shoulder surgery and ended up um, using, you know, opioids um, because of that and then realized he was addicted and did the responsible thing and sought treatment um, in Atlanta for that. And his judge was not impressed by any of this. In fact, she instead said he was in violation of probation and he needed to serve two to four years. Um, so he went to, to prison, he went back to prison, um, and began that sentence, and at that point, um, several several folks he knew, Michael Rubin, Desiree Perez from Rock Nation, and others came together and helped get him out, and not just helped get him out, but decided, you know, there were millions of other people living on the edge of their seats, the same way Meek was every day on probation, and they wanted to make a change across the country for all of those people. And
1: This is a shocking uh, factoid, if you will, that I read on Reform Alliance's website. And I'm surprised I didn't know this as a criminal defense practitioner. Um, And, you know, I do public speaking uh, engagements, too, where I talk about these kind of numbers. But the website claims 45% of probation and parole failures account for – sorry – Probation and parole failures account for 45% of all prison admissions. That's yeah. shocking.
3: Yeah, it really is shocking and and that is uh supervision violations, so that could be technical violations, a large percentage of them are technical violations, a smaller percentage of them are new crimes, but um it it is absolutely shocking because often one thing people don't realize is often um, you know, even if you're swept up because you're accused of committing a new crime, if you have a, are on probation or parole, you have what's called a probation or parole hold, and you will be held there without being be- eligible for bail or let go. You could be held there for a year, for two years, and then, um, you know, the, the original case you know be be acquitted of the original case or they drop the charge
0: or, or you can so, be you can be acquitted of the original of the underlying new allegation or new crime and still be convicted exactly. of violating probation or parole because the burden of proof is different or
1: exactly. or they can't prove the new arrest and the new arrest gets dismissed so they hold on to the the technical, the, the technical violation that they didn't originally violate you for example being late on curfew not being home at 10 o'clock, but 1015, if they can't prove the gun charge, they'll say, we're going to violate you on this. And the other thing that is really troubling to me, and this is the case in New York um, with certain parole violations, is you don't have judges, you know, that are kind of checked by the appeals process and prosecutors and defense lawyers in the same fashion. You have parole officers that are called administrative judges, which are people that used to hate (laughs) parolees and violate them all the time, and their patience was worn thin with them, and then they're tired of the job. And I'm painting this in the worst light. That's not all parole judges. But often they're individuals that haven't gone to law school, um, abuse their discretion, don't want to hear it from the accused, and violate them and send them off to prison.
3: It's absolutely ridiculous. And it, it can obviously impact a person's whole life because you often have somebody who, you know, has come home from prison or jail. They're on probation and or they're on parole and they've been able to get their life back together. They've been able to find employment, which is so hard, even without any sort of criminal conviction right now, it's hard to find a job. But once you have that that criminal conviction, you know, that's on your record. That's a a black mark um, against you with most employers. Uh, And then they've been able to get housing, again, also extremely difficult when you have a criminal record. A lot of the time they've reconciled with their families. They begin to move forward. Maybe they secure a car. Um, You know, they're really starting to make progress and heal from, from the trauma of incarceration. And then they're late to a meeting or they leave the jurisdiction accidentally or they, you know, can't pay a fine because they got a pop tire and they now have to choose between, you know, fixing their tires so they can get to work so they don't become in in uh in uh failure with probation or or actually paying their restitution the and, and becoming in failure with probation. So it's it's not a winning situation for people who are on supervision.
0: So I, I wanna I wanna offer a few thoughts and then ask how the Reform Alliance and how what you're doing. Uh, my, my kind of take on this is there is a paternal condescending attitude towards probationers and individuals on supervision, as if somehow they've been given this great break so that we can be extra strict in enforcing these sometimes really stupid, forgive me, rules of, of conditions like you can't travel from Queens to Brooklyn without violating your uh, probation. And that attitude of they're getting away with something so we don't care that we can um, uh, violate them or they can serve time for quote-unquote technical violations compared to my kind of law school understanding of punishment and, and rehabilitation is that the point of probation, I thought before I got into this work, was to help people who had been in trouble, admitted their wrongdoing, and to move them back into a functioning member of society with some assistance to try, like my few probation officers should be helping them look for jobs, looking for programs for them if they need uh, mental health or drug addiction programs, um, you know, things like that as opposed to... But instead
1: it's know. like a finger-wagging dad, only a finger-wagging dad can throw you back into prison. Right, so, so
0: how, I, I don't know if that's... The reform, what does the Reform Alliance do, and how do you hope to change the system and change views?
3: Well, the good news is that we have already started to change the system. It's exciting. So, we are a bipartisan advocacy organization that focuses on bringing transformative change to probation and parole through legislation and advocacy and really telling the stories of people who have been impacted. Uh, We've been able to pass 16 bills in 10 different states, and i got to tell you, it's super exciting. Uh, We've been able to get our bill signed by uh, everybody from Ron DeSantis to Governor Gavin Newsom um, and and many governors in between there.
0: That's a trivia Um, question we would have lost, right?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, I saw today one of our our comms folks uh, put something up that said, what do Kathy Hochul, governor of New York, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer in, in Michigan, Governor Kemp, Governor DeSantis, and, and Governor Newsom all have in common? And I was thinking, well, they just won their reelections And then they reminded me, oh, they all signed our bills. Yeah. That's
1: incredible. Yeah.
0: Good for you.
3: Uh, Did- Thank you. Thank you. Um, but we are really focused on, on changing the system, getting rid of these. Uh, terrible technical violations and reinvesting in programs that we know actually work to make people safer.
1: Now, well, let me. We only have six minutes left, and I want to get to like a million things that you've done, which is which are so exciting and have such a great impact on society. Um, among them, tell us about your role in the First Step Act of 2018 and working alongside the Trump administration and what the results have been so far. The First Step
3: Act is, is one of the most meaningful bills that I've ever had the opportunity to work on, and not just because it resulted in thousands of people coming home from federal prison and, and thousands more inside being treated with dignity, but also because it, it really was a shining example of what can happen when politicians uh, put their politics aside and focus on people.
0: So, so tell like us, tell us, said, not everybody knows what the First Step Act is. I, I'm not even sure I do. Tell us what it is.
3: <laughs> the First Step Act was a prison and sentencing reform bill that was passed in 2018 and signed into law by President Trump. Uh, it's a bill that let thousands of people out of prison and also changed the conditions inside of prisons, um, allowing people to take uh, classes and earn time off of their sentences. Um, and it also came with some pretty important sentencing reforms. Uh, for example, it made um, the changes to crack cocaine sentencing retroactive, whereas before they had not been. So um, we've been able to see, like I said, thousands of people come home. It also expanded compassionate release, which um, we didn't know then, but found out during the pandemic would be extremely um, necessary to help save people from living inside of the prisons during the uh, pandemic.
1: Interesting. Um, I made that application, not knowing that you were in part responsible well, we, for we, it. Yeah, we, so thank you.
3: <laughs> great. Um, I, I love hearing when it's when it's been able to help people. So yeah, it it expanded the compassionate release program, um, and I, it it was so unique because it really was Democrats and Republicans. Uh, coming together, faith leaders, business leaders, um, in a way that you don't often see in politics, and to have folks like Van Jones and Hakeem Jeffries, and um, you know other Mark Morial with the Urban League and other folks on the left willing to step up and you know be seen associating with the the Trump administration and, and work with Republicans in a very very difficult time, um, not just you know to, to keep. The government running or or uh something like that, but to let people out of prison I mean it just it was remarkable and um i'm I'm so glad that it happened, and I'm hopeful that this administration will build on that progress and continue to uh, engage on sentencing reforms
1: i I had the great pleasure, so I really understand how you feel about having bipartisan support for working with the case of Julius Jones that. I executive produced The Last Defense, and we selected Julius's jo- Julius Jones's case because we thought it showed so many varying levels of injustices that are kind of every day in the, in the justice system. And he was on death row. And Jessica also, yeah. by the way, represented inmates on death row on the appellate level in California. And to see the, like, national support, Republicans and Democrats alike, for his uh, death commutation was just incredible at a time where politics was so incredibly divisive. It really is the only common ground. I wonder, do you still, because I I know during the Trump era, the politics were divisive, and I don't blame Trump for that alone, Uh, like many people do, Um, but Mm -hmm. there seemed to be real middle ground on criminal justice reform. And now, and I'm not in the criminal justice reform game like you are. But now I see that our politicians are completely divided there. And on the last election, that was a focal point of who was running, Um, you know, pushback against progressive DAs and criminal justice reform. What do you think about middle ground now?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting because there were some candidates and you, you brought up Oklahoma. So even in Oklahoma, we saw Governor Sit, who who has done quite a bit on criminal justice reform down there, including a recent parole bill um, and a lot of clemencies. Uh, you saw him taking hits from his opponent, who was a Democrat, um, for his criminal justice work, uh, but he he did stay strong and and you know he won his reelection. Um, and that's really the story that we saw coming into the election. We knew that. Voters were ranking um, public safety and crime as their number two issue after inflation. Um, but across the board, we saw candidates attacking their opponents. We saw this in Governor Newsom's race. We saw this in Governor Stiff's race. We saw this in Governor Hochul's race, um, attacking their opponents as soft on crime. Um, we saw this in, in Senator Fetterman's race. Um, And we saw that they won anyway. So, you know, the way I'm reading this is that voters don't just want a return to tough on crime, uh, lock them up policies that have gotten us into the place where, you know, five million people are trapped inside of our justice system. What they want is smart evidence based programs that are going to save taxpayers money and actually going to reduce uh, the crime that's happening. So. I think it's a great moment for criminal justice reform. I think we have a lot of opportunity here and i'm I'm super excited to continue to work on probation and parole.
0: Jessica, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for doing the work that you do. Our clients thank you um Hopefully'll we'll come back and chat again once we get um um more on this topic.
1: you're phenomenal Jessica. Thank
0: you. Thanks, guys. I want to do a quick plug to our chief sponsor, which of course is our law firm, Barquette Epstein. Kieran Aldea and Laturco. You can find us at BarquetteEpstein.com. Our main phone number is 516-745-1500. We really do have a committed a team of committed lawyers willing to work for you in all kinds of litigation. Come back next week for another episode of Crime and Justice Radio, where we're going to talk free speech, government censorship, and social media. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.